Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration issues. In today's episode, Deanna and I are discussing the 2002 Supreme Court of Canada decision in Chu v. Canada, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. This is a leading decision on how humanitarian and compassionate considerations are to be assessed in immigration appeals at the Immigration Appeal Division, as well as in humanitarian and compassionate applications submitted to Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can email me at steven.meurrens at l-a-r-l-e-e dot com. And Deanna can be found at d-e-a-n-n-a at m-c-c-r-e-a-l-a-w dot c-a. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Our subject for today is we are going to look back at a case from the Supreme Court of Canada, not a new case. It's from 2002. It's the case of Chu and Canada. Uh, the reason we're going back to this is that it's, it, it is a very landmark decision of the court, uh, and it's, it's one that considers uh, the factors that are considered by the immigration uh, the immigration appeal division uh, when determining whether to uh, to exercise its equitable jurisdiction and uh, give compassionate relief in appropriate circumstances. Uh, part of the reason why we've decided to revisit it at this time is because there has been some conversation within the immigration bar about how, uh, what's the what's the right word here, Steve, how nebulous the agency discretion is. Is that an appropriate word to describe it? All over the place, but nebulous does it in one word. Yeah, and um, and that I think that even though the standard itself, in terms of what the legislative standard is, hasn't changed very much, the application of the test keeps shifting over time, and it does seem to kind of go in waves, um, waves of what does compassion actually mean in the immigration context, and I think a lot of uh, lawyers across the country have been commenting that the standard is is at a pretty low end at this particular moment in time. And uh, I think part of why this came up in conversation between Steve and I recently is because of uh, a challenging decision that I received not long ago uh, that brought up the conversation that uh, was top of mind in, in the Chu case. Um, and so we sort of wanted to start with with Chu and talk about that decision and some of the other important agency decisions along the way uh, and just have a general conversation about about how this jurisprudence has developed over time and talk about some of these waves of compassion and how they've rippled through time, yeah. uh, I think, with the view to talking about about where we're at at this moment. So yeah, as Deanna said, this is a 2002 decision, Chu v. Canada. I note on Canley that it's been cited uh, with approval 3,461 times. So it's a very well-cited case. It's received, as I said, 3,461 positive citations and one negative one, according to Canley, which was 
uh, the case that Deanna was involved in. And it's recent, and we so we want to revisit what was said in Chu. Now, in the case that uh, Deanna was involved in, uh, the judge there, Justice Annis, uh, wrote at paragraph 59, despite its limited purview, Chu's sanctioning of the ribic factors is its principal continuing legacy. So what we want to do today is discuss the Chu decision, the ribic factors, how they've been applied um, 3,460 out of the 3,461 times, and just uh, yeah, highlight what was a major case and how it serves as a principle for the exercise of humanitarian and compassionate discretion in immigration law. So the first half of this episode will be almost like a law school type case summary review of CHU, and the latter half will be the application of the CHU slash RIBIC factors at the Immigration Appeal Division. Um, so CHU is, uh, it starts, paragraph one sets out the decision um, and what the issue was, which was, quote, the following question in this appeal is whether the factor of the potential foreign hardship can be considered in deciding whether to uphold an order to remove an individual from Canada. More specifically, this appeal concerns the interpretation of the phrase having regard to all of the circumstances of the case. And for those who are practicing immigration law, they'll know that the Supreme Court, spoiler alert, ultimately says that yes. Uh, the factor of potential foreign hardship can be considered in deciding um, in considering humanitarian and compassionate factors. And this decision is the reason why. So let's continue. So maybe it's worth just for 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 those of us who are not super familiar or for those of our listeners who aren't super familiar with the humanitarian and compassionate discretion. It's essentially the authority that a decision maker has to allow somebody who is either ineligible or inadmissible to Canada to become a permanent resident in spite of their ineligibility or inadmissibility. So it's kind of, you can apply, um, if you don't meet the criteria, uh, the department can grant you that status in spite of your ineligibility or inadmissibility. And the wording in the current act is, if it is justified by humanitarian and compassionate considerations related to the foreign national, taking to, into account the best interests of a child directly affected. So it's this kind of like, it's this is what I meant when I was referring to, this is the equitable jurisdiction that the department has to grant relief to the applicant and make them a permanent resident because of the circumstance, because of all the circumstances of their case. Yeah, and so in the situation in CHU, uh, it's not just for entry to Canada that the department or the Immigration and Refugee Board can look at humanitarian and compassionate factors. It's also in the removal setting. So in the case of CHU, uh, as well as in the case that Deanna was involved in, it involved a permanent resident who was facing loss of status and possible removal of Canada. And the Immigration Appeal Division has the ability, in most cases, to determine even if the decision to strip someone of their permanent resident status is correct, are there humanitarian and compassionate factors that should result in that person being allowed to keep their permanent resident status? 
And Chu gets into what are the scope, what is the scope of those factors? Um, and specifically, can it include hardship or adverse conditions that a person may face in the country that they are removed to? The facts of Chu itself are basically just in brief, an individual who was a Cambodian citizen who fled to Vietnam, immigrated to Canada, and didn't disclose in his application that he was married and had kids. So when he then, about five years later, I think, tried to sponsor his family to immigrate to Canada, uh, immigration officials realized that he had committed misrepresentation in his application to immigrate, and so they commenced removal proceedings against him and sought to both strip him of his permanent resident status uh, and also bar him from being able to enter Canada for a specified period. Still a practice that happens today. Uh, that's, you know, people misrepresenting in their immigration applications. Uh, consequence can be that down the road, Canada's, uh, the, usually the Canada Border Services Agency can commence proceedings to revoke a person's, a permanent resident's immigrant status. So in this case, the Immigration Appeal Division said that in considering all the humanitarian and compassionate factors, they were going to give minimal weight to uh, country conditions in Vietnam or Cambodia. And the uh, Mr. Chu challenged this at the federal court as well as at the federal court of appeal. And he argued that there had been a, another immigration appeal division decision called Ribic v. Canada that had said that uh, the foreign country conditions were something that the immigration appeal division could look at. And the federal court of appeal essentially set aside Ribic. Um, and they used the word, the Federal Court of Appeals said that Ribic had caused confusion over whether this could be considered and that uh, it could not, so, and that Ribic was no longer good law, essentially. And that was what the Supreme Court had to uh, assess was, were the factors articulated in Ribic, which we will get into discussing all of them in a bit, but specifically the ability of the Immigration Appeal Division to look at conditions in the person's country of origin, were they relevant? So some examples of uh, maybe before we get into the Supreme Court decision, what is an example of like a relevant country condition that what like when would you argue the country conditions are a negative factor to somebody being removed? Um. For example, if you are dealing with somebody who is a child who's asthmatic and the country that they would be removed to is a, com a country where there are um, terrible air quality issues, for example, uh, or if there's um, a situation where there is very poor conditions for, for women 
And yeah. it would be a woman who would be going back to that country and they're going to live in a place where they don't, they're not married or they're young or they're single and they would be expected to have very little um, personal liberties, for example, in the country to which they would be removed. Uh, these are just a couple of examples that are top of mind. Yeah, the uh, the woman one where women face discrimination is probably the one that I've argued the most. Also, back when China had the uh, one child policy, yeah. um, if you could show that a couple had been trying to conceive a second child, uh, the fact that they would be unable to do so in China at the time was also a uh, the type of factor that you would raise um, in trying to show the Immigration Appeal Division why there would be humanitarian and compassionate factors that warranted against the loss of permanent resident status. Sexual orientation would be another one. Oh, yeah. If it's a country where they would not be able to live openly uh, openly with their their sexual orientation or um, sexual identity, that would be, a, or gender identity, that would be another compelling one. Yeah. So this is essentially... Is any of this relevant is what the Supreme Court had to address. And I'm going to skip all the standard of review uh, jurisprudence um, and just all of which has been replaced, (laughs) all of which has been replaced. Um, And so the Supreme Court adopted, you know, its usual purposive uh, interpretation of the act to find that um, the intention of Parliament was that everything that foreign, uh, that basically everything should be considered, including foreign conditions. Um, I'll get back to, well, I don't, I actually, I think I'll, I'm not going to get into the specific reasoning and the grammatical wording of the statute too much, uh, or at all, really. Um, you can go and read the decision if you want to get into the nitty gritty of it. But for the purpose of, um, the episode, I think it's important to understand that the Supreme Court found that Parliament intended for the RIBIC factors to apply in cases involving humanitarian and compassionate uh, discretion. And the specific paragraph from RIBIC that the Supreme Court cited with approval uh, reads as follows, quote, In each case, the board looks to the same general areas to determine if having regard to all the circumstances of the case, the person should not be removed from Canada. These circumstances include the seriousness of the offense or offenses leading to the deportation and the possibility of rehabilitation, or in the alternative, the circumstances surrounding the failure to meet the conditions of admission which led to the deportation order. The board looks to the length of time spent in Canada and the degree to which the appellant is established, family in Canada and the dislocation to that family that deportation of the appellant would cause, the support available for the appellant not only within the family but also within the community, and the degree of hardship that would be caused to the appellant by his return to his country of nationality. While the general areas of review are similar in each case, The facts are rarely, if ever, identical. And that's the paragraph that the Supreme Court cited with approval. Um, And that's the test that I think gets used pretty much in every removal case or some modified version of that test. Um, 
where different factors except are for my out. case of course yeah except for your case uh yeah. where um it was well we could discuss your case maybe later so hopefully it is well we'll see how it gets treated i know there was a certified question to the federal court of appeal so even if um that case ultimately isn't decided at the federal court of appeal other justices will know that there's uncertainty involving what was being proposed there and maybe since we keep darting around it what was uh, suggested there was that the ribic factors should not apply the way that they have been by the federal court and the federal court of appeal and the immigration appeal division since ribic but that rather basically the sole determining factor should be the seriousness of the offense essentially is what uh, was suggested there a little bit about the likelihood of reoffending, but even in, in the case that you were involved in, that was superseded by the seriousness of the offense. So yeah. it's, uh, but for the vast majority of decisions, there is no factor that is determinative. Um, there's, and you could almost list them because I feel like they've, it has become, and maybe you've you agree this almost listing of like the same five factors in almost every immigration appeal division case around this um, establishment, family ties, hardship, best interest of the child, um, oh, and remorse are kind of the same seriousness of the offense. And would you agree like those are kind of like the same factors that always arise? Yeah. And there's yeah. no determining one. Um, no, I think that there is some variance in terms of how significantly each one is value, valued or weighed depending on what the nature of the admissibility consideration is. Like, for example, yeah. if it's a criminality case, the seriousness of the seriousness of the offense and the um, degree of remorse is more important in the case of a criminality um, admissibility issue, whereas like in a residency obligation appeal, it's not really like, I don't think, so just to, to make this clear, like somebody can be up on a removal order appeal for a variety of reasons. It might be because you committed a crime and then you're up on a removal order. It might be because they found you have committed a misrepresentation, or it might be because you were a permanent resident, but then you didn't spend enough days in Canada. And then they've written you up and said you didn't abide your residency obligation. So there are like a whole variety of reasons that you might be before the board on a removal order appeal. But the same Ribic factors are supposed to apply regardless of the reason you're before the board on a removal order appeal. So they're applying the same test, but on very like wildly different facts, as the Chu case says. But, you know. I find that like in a criminality case, they're very, very preoccupied with the nature of the offense. I mean, my case that we keep talking about, which is the case of, um, of Tianren Zhang, and we'll provide the citation, I guess, in our, in our footnote, um, shows the degree to which the board and even the court can become overly preoccupied with the nature of the offense and the seriousness of the offense and um, the degree of remorse. So 
sometimes to the point that it kind of hamstrings the rest of the analysis in my view. And I think that this case really epitomizes how the whole analysis became quite hamstring, hamstrung on that component of it. And not yeah. to say that, like, of course, like it is the objective of the board to consider it's a serious offense and they're supposed to be there with this protective view to making sure that people who've committed serious offenses will be um, removed where that is for the best interests of the Canadian public more generally. I understand that. But at the same time, it's still an entire test. And this this principle from Chu is that they still have to look at all the circumstances of the case. And I think that that's why Steve and I felt like this was an important moment to go back to this case and be like, it has to be looked at in a holistic way. Yeah, um, and we'll do, there's another Supreme Court decision that we'll get into in depth in a different episode called Kent the Sammy. But that kind of involved the same issue where there had been a fixation almost as a determining factor on hardship. And yeah. the Supreme Court basically rearticulated what it said in Chu, which is, no, it's all of the factors have to be weighed. There's no one determining factor. Right. Um, and in the case you were involved in, it seemed like uh, the federal court was trying to say that. And what was interesting about your case was that the Immigration Appeal Division um, well, the Canada Border Services Agency, anyways, had consented based on that holistic set of factors. And there was a suggestion and a proposal by Justice Annis that there should be a determining factor, which is right. seriousness of offense slash likelihood of reoffending. The reason I keep pausing when I say likelihood of reoffending as a separate factor is because of the way uh, Justice Annis said that someone's past can really, really, really be indicative of how they are likely to behave in the future. And that the more serious an offense was, the more you can almost presume that the likelihood to reoffend factor will be negative, even if the actual probability of them reoffending is low, because the risk of another serious offense makes it and he even used a mathematical formula as an example, not as what should have been done, uh, were his exact words, that this is an example, it's not what I'm suggesting people do, but here's a mathematical formula that uh, basically leads to the conclusion that seriousness of the offense can be a determining factor. In Chu, it is clear that all of the factors are supposed to be considered and that there is no rule really as to how much weight each individual factor has to be as, like assigned in terms of That's weight right. or that there is a determining factor. And really the approach we had taken in this particular case was that to to prioritize one factor almost to the detriment of the other factors ends up acting almost as if the decision maker is fettering their discretion, like to to not do a holistic review of all of the factors, um, hamstrings the entire analysis. And that was the argument that we made at the board. And that's the argument that was made at the federal court, not successfully, of course, but um, that's that's where we were going and I think that that was sort of like it was hearkening back to the to the spirit of the Chu decision um, 
because, you know, on the facts of this case, um, there were, and, and, and this is all on the record, of course, that yes, it was a serious offense and that was not debated at all, but there was also, um, you know, there were psychiatric reports showing that, you know, in the opinion of experts that this was, a, um, in the opinion of the, um, the, um, this, the analyst that, that had met with this young man, that there was a, a professional opinion, that there was not a high likelihood of, of re-offending and and also what was troubling to us at the board was that the decision made by the board was it said that really one of the reasons why a stay was not granted was because the board wanted to make an example that this type of person should not be permitted to remain in Canada. And there's a lot of jurisprudence out there that says that that immigration removals proceedings are not intended to be setting an example. There's not supposed to be a deterrent value to removals decisions that they're really not supposed to have that impact, that that's more appropriate to the criminal setting, but not to the immigration setting. And again, so we talked about that just in terms of the spirit of the the Ribbick test. Um, so. And in terms, I mean, we, we've been showing examples so far of where the uh, the state or lawyers for the government, representatives for the government, are have tended to influence and almost or tended to suggest or suggest that um, one factor should be determinative. Certainly from the private bar side, I think there's there's a similar tendency when it comes to best interest of the child, um, where and I mean I'm. I've definitely done submissions before where best interest of the child is treated as a defining factor. And I would say that in my experience before the board, um, when the weighing of factors is done, that factor is given a lot of weight. Um, I've seen federal court jurisprudence where it, where there seem to be examples where certain members didn't give it a lot of weight, um, but certainly in decisions that I've been involved, uh, the, the decisions that come to mind for me, that factor largely in the misrepresentation context. Um, like I had one decision a couple years ago involving someone who had uh, fake stamps in their passport that every factor went against my client from remorse to their establishment in Canada. And then there were three paragraphs on the fact that the person's kids lived here and the harm that separation would have. And that was the determining factor. So it's not was this before Sunny Wang. I just need to know because uh, I think that the board has been far shorter on sympathy since that rash so of this, fake uh, stamps. This was not a Sunny Wang case. Yeah. Um, before I, before that. No, made... no. This post this post date Sunny oh, Wang. Oh, really? And to okay. give you an idea of how decisions can, uh, like, so I'll give you an example without, I guess, naming the person of how the board can exercise their discretion. And in each of these cases, the case that I just mentioned and the case that I'll get to, the member went through the whole Ribic fact, two factors, said that they, were, you know, and they did the test. They're not assigning determinative weight to any. Um, and so the, in this example that I'll give, 
a permanent resident was involved in the production of stamps uh, outside of Sunny Wang. There were fake stamps in his passport and none of this submitting, we saved the narrative for the hearing and minister's counsel said that they expected my client to stand up and say he was innocent. He had no idea that they were fake stamps. Well, you know, the same type of stuff that a lot of the Sunny Wang um, clients said. And instead, uh, my client explained that when he was in China, he got into got involved with the uh, an individual who wanted to try to make fake stamps and see if they could make a business of it, and that he had gotten involved with it, and that his passport. Uh, was one of the test cases which got caught um, and we wound up before the first federal court on a res judicata issue that I won't get into and then the uh, the IAD hearing itself and so when it came to the assessment of the factors uh, remorse was an extremely strong factor because my client came up and just admitted everything and also as far as the i mean it's always interesting how the individual members assess things because the member found that while the offense was very serious unbelievably serious since he was trying to get involved in the fake stamp or was involved with someone who was getting involved with the fake stamp business he actually met the residency requirement it's and best interest of the child was looked at. And so the member just went through this factor is negative. This factor is positive. The fact in that case that there is this holistic approach and all the decisions get weighed and considered. And again, the person also had a uh, child who was in Canada. I'm very surprised you won that, Steve. You must be a very, very good litigator. It, I think it had caught, I think it was the... I think there were a, multiple, a couple things that had uh, happened in our favor. Um, it was also fun to litigate just because the uh, minister's council opened their opened their closing submissions with a Game of Thrones quote, <laughs> and then like completely threw me off because I sat there trying to think of my own Game of Thrones quote oh, for my reply, and. When I stood up and said, uh, honorable member, I've been trying to think of a reply Game of Thrones quote. And the uh, the member just looked at me deadpanned and said, as someone who does not watch Game of Thrones, I do not need to hear any more Game of Thrones quotes. Oh, man. Yeah. That would have gone all completely over my head. I wouldn't have even known that that's what was happening. I think the quote had gone over her head as well. But uh, because I think if she had watched Game of Thrones, she would have fully appreciated it. But anyway, so, um, yeah, but that's just an example of how these hearings go, where you can throw, I mean, you basically try to just prevent, and I assume that's your approach as well, just as favorable um, an approach, and you never know which factor will stick or not. No, I would say, though, that, um, that, you know, the, the notion, like, the... Okay, a couple of things come out from what you said. First of all, the sense of the the decision maker's distaste for the the appellant's conduct 
is always a very significant factor, except when you're dealing with a residency obligation appeal. I mean, I think that obviously it's not an offense at that point. It's just a residency obligation noncompliance. But I used to think that the number of days, like, you know, on a residency obligation noncompliance, you know, the target to residency obligation compliance is that you must have been in Canada for a minimum of 730 days within the five years. Earlier on in my career, I used to think that the closer you were to 730 days, the bigger your chances of winning. And I no longer feel that way. I feel like I've won cases where I had 200 days and I've lost cases where I had 600. So I don't think anymore like that is the seriousness of the offense component that that's the seriousness seriousness of the offense part of the Ribic test in a residency obligation appeal kind of uh, context. Um, so that's the only type of case where I think that that factor is not super important. But both in the misrep and in the criminality context, I have come to believe that like what Mr. Justice Anna said in the um, Zhang case, I feel like that has come to overwhelm immigration appeal division proceedings to the point that um, really the look on the face of the decision maker when they come to understand what actually occurred does have a very important impact on the overall nature of the proceedings. And that's part of why I think that this episode is important to me, because I feel like that isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But I feel like that is the way that it is lately. Um, the other factor that I think is overwhelmingly important at this stage in a way that it shouldn't be is this notion of remorse. And I struggle with this one because I feel like quantifying remorse is a pretty messed up thing. It's sort of like the, it makes me think again of the rehag, the, the episode we did with Sean Rehag, where it's sort of like credibility. Like, how do you quantify credibility? You know, how do you quantify remorse? And I sometimes find that when my client is up on the stand and they're being cross-examined for the purposes of determining how remorseful they are, I feel like it's it's a really it's a really challenging exercise because often like I've spent days in my office with my clients and they're crying and they're sad and they're regretful and they're ashamed and they're upset and then they're being questioned about this and then to have a decision maker write as they did, for example, in Mr. Zhang's case, um, both at the IAD and at the federal court, that he wasn't sufficiently remorseful. Um, it's a very strange thing to get in a judicial decision, um, especially when it goes against the psychiatric reports, when it goes against um, even the criminal judge's sentencing decision you know like it's it's just a really strange exercise and it makes me wonder like what Mr. Rehag said on our podcast how do they know what their remorse is like what do like what analytical skills are they using to quantify that person's remorse remorse is uh Justice Diner has had some lengthy decisions um setting out remorse and the key that the passage that i just remember the most is that remorse can be more complex than specific words yes. um and it is really hard when someone is on the stand uh to gauge what totally. because you often also then run into that 
well, are they sorry for the activity exactly. or are they sorry? And actually, Just where I was gonna go, Steve. that decision. Um, but finish what you were saying, though, because we know what we're talking about, but I'm not sure that the audience does. They're sure. sorry for what happened, but they're not sorry for the act. And that's what they always yeah. get accused of. You're sorry that you're in trouble, but you're not sorry that you did it. That's what they get accused of all the time. And so how do you show the difference? Do you want to, should we coach our clients to cry more? Or like, how do you cry when you're afraid because you're in front of three lawyers and a judge and, you know, like, it's just a bizarre thing. How do you demonstrate it on the day of your hearing um, when you're wearing your suit and freaked out? You know, like, it's just, it's a very, um, it's a very difficult thing to put into evidence. The other place where it gets complicated, and I haven't dealt with this, maybe you have, but I've read decisions on it, are where somebody pled guilty because they didn't want to go to trial, but they've maintained their innocence. And so they're being removed basically because they didn't either couldn't afford a lawyer or... Um, just the way the plea bargain system works. I did a rehab application once for someone in the United States who was told that if they went to court and they went to trial, the prosecution would seek jail time of five to 15 years. But if they just pled guilty, they would pay a $200 fine. For sure. And if you're that individual, you look at it and you say, well, okay, then I'll plead guilty. But then when it comes to remorse, the assessment of the remorse factor in a case where someone is uh, maintaining their innocence is complicated. Yeah. The In that case that I was just describing about the fake stamp, uh, individual involved with fake stamps, there wasn't, CBSA had tried to state, well, and this, the board shut down, that CBSA had tried to state, well, if you really were remorseful, you wouldn't be appealing, um, which, the, uh, the member, uh, who's a former lawyer, really shut down. But it's still those, like, there's little perceptions that still yeah. um, exist. And even whether that's in the back of people's minds. I was in, like, four Can four I just add on ago. to that one, though? Because there's yeah. one that's similar, which came up in the Zhang case as well, which is the idea of blame. So in this particular case, my client had mentioned, because there were other persons that were involved in this incident for which he was convicted, and he was asked about the responsibility of those other parties to the crime. And he was kind of lambasted for saying, I don't hold them responsible. Like, what I did, I did. But I was influenced by them, but I am responsible. And in fact, I feel guilty that they were there because of me. But again, it was this notion that that, that there was an accusation and a fine, not just an accusation, there was a finding that that amounted to deflecting responsibility, that that amounted to um, saying that he was putting the blame on the friends. And I just don't know in what world (laughs) that constitutes deflecting blame. Because of course, like they were also responsible, you know, the fact that he, (laughs) um, they also committed crimes, you know, so um, to try and sort of take that onto himself and, 
and like absolve them shouldn't be part of no, accepting uh, responsibility, you know? The like, other one that there used to be um, until a federal court decision that I like printed, saved, called Yavari, I'll link to it in the show notes, was if you say that you committed a crime and in your, you know, explanation of what happened, you write that you were drunk, are you trying to deflect remorse? And it's a, I can't remember who the justice was, but they said, no, it's stating that you're, you were drunk when you committed the offense is an expression of fact, not, uh, not that, uh, not that you're not remorseful. We're another example of, and it's, it's, interesting in the assessment of all of these factors like there's also that question and this arises in both the immigration appeal division and introducing like that judicial review new evidence just stuff that can't that legally shouldn't be considered but you often wonder in the back of this person's mind is it going to be a factor so in this case it was a stay of removal case for a person who had been convicted of a series of brutal, like brutal offense, and brutal not well. I mean, he had obtained photos of um, he was in high school and he had obtained photos of women in high school and used those photos to exploit and threaten them. And about a week, two weeks before the uh, IAD hearing, he got charged with three fresh offenses and at that point they're just allegations um the decision was made to not wait for resolution of those uh new charges and at the hearing cbsa stood up and introduced the new charges and during their closing submission said Although I know you're legally not allowed to consider these charges, I think you should keep them in the back of your mind as you're writing your decision, wow. which the member uh, shut down. I know I will never forget his exact words were, you have a lot to work with. You don't have to suggest something impermissible like that. But you also wonder in the assessment of these factors or in any decisions, what's going on kind of what's not being written down. Um, which brings yeah. me back to the post-it note of what is not making it exactly. that I've mentioned a few times. What doesn't make it onto the actual uh, decision? Um, and to me, yeah. it takes me back to to Sean Rehag's thing about um, under these very porous concepts like credibility and Rehag. Sorry. credibility (laughs) and remorse, hello Freud, Um, under these very porous concepts, there's a lot of room, especially in these highly discretionary areas, for pretty much anything um, to be disguised. And my concern is that it's being used as a very, very large umbrella for these acts for which the decision maker has a general distaste to get kind of dressed up. Um, And I think, again, I'm going to go back to the purpose with which we came to this topic for um, this podcast, which is uh, we were 
to some extent inspired by this discussion that happened on the immigration listserv by some of the leading litigators um, within our, our, our practice area. Um, that we're talking about, and I won't name them because we haven't asked for their permission, but they were talking about these retrograde developments that were happening at both at the at the front end, meaning by visa officers, but by also decision makers at the IAD um, and by judges um, that it's kind of you know, we had these wonderful decisions like in Chu and in Kanthasami that were saying, like, if you're going to bring the scope down um, to focus on certain factors where it's about, you know, how serious is the offense or, you know, um, how much remorse are they showing? We want to remind you that, in fact, the scope of it is supposed to be this big. Let's bring it back to all of the circumstances, truly all of the circumstances. That is the message from and to go back to Kanthasami, which is like, this is truly about compassion. If there's a one line summary of what is the Kanthasami decision about. And so you can have this nice little test with a series of factors. But what's happening right now is that this big concept of compassion, this big concept of all the circumstances of the case is being whittled down again quietly, slightly surreptitiously and invisibly, but it's happening. And this is the creep that we're seeing um, at the, you know, at the front lines and uh, why we wanted to look back to 20, 2002, a different 2020, like with a different orange <laughs> up the numbers um, and be like, you know, can we go back to all the circumstances of the case for a minute here? Yeah. And it's, it's like, I think, especially in Kent, the Sammy, um, and in uh, Chu, where the Supreme Court says, assess all of the factors, I think there is this tendency at the officer level, especially at uh, the officer level, maybe less so at the Immigration Appeal Division, but at the officer level for the people who are writing program manuals and training guides for their officers, um, that there has to be a list of factors to consider. Yeah, they don't want just a, you can consider everything. Um, but the point of the Rivik test, like the point of it is not to give you a checklist. The point of it is to remind you that it's all the circumstances. The yeah. point of it is to remind you that it's compassion. Like it's just giving you a way to put your mind through some of the things that comprise compassion. It's to be an exercise to remind your brain of what all the circumstances includes. It's not supposed to bind you. It's supposed to free that up, right? And so, you know, to use it not as a fettering thing, but as an enlarging thing. And so um, I, I think really some of these cases have that higher purpose and higher meaning. Um, and so they should be calls to action in terms of that, um, you know, not more mechanics. Yeah. Um, just going back to you, I thought in terms of what was the counter argument to why the IRB shouldn't consider country conditions. Um, and it's a weird argument. I think. It was a weird argument. I didn't know. So the argument of why the, the main argument was, well, it's premature because we don't know yet where the person would be removed to, which I don't think I've ever been at a immigration appeal division where it wasn't obvious where the person was going to be removed to, like their country of citizenship. 
Um, and the IRB intervened to say that, yeah, 90, 95% of the time, it's really obvious. Um, yeah. Yeah, but also so. I like the, the other counter argument that was made. Well, like, well, when would you like this to be considered when you're in an er, emergency stay proceeding? That's when you would like us to talk about it, because well, those cases are. Well, that's what uh, that's what um, that's what they had argued was that it should be decided at the time when the removals officer says we are going to remove you to China. You can seek judicial review of that decision, but what's there to review? Where else are they going to go? Yeah. You can't and introduce these cases... new humanitarian and compassionate factors at a JR. So I yeah. didn't understand at all the uh, the counter argument. No, me neither. Um, that whole part of the decision seemed really dubious. Um, yeah. Although that being said, when we get to like Chiarelli and some of those other decisions, uh, they do, you know, when does the set... When does the right to liberty get exchange, get engaged? Is it at the loss of PR? Is it at the decision to remove the person? Is it when they drive them to the airport? Like there's, there yeah. is a, the Supreme Court does have uh, some other aspects of immigration law where they do like to punt the serious test or charter issue they away from what actually, is, yeah, kick the can down the road away from like the main avenue where it could all be decided. I feel like we've circled this issue pretty nicely, but there is one little call out that I want to to offer as well. And this time I am going to give credit, even though I don't have permission, which is um, a call out to Gordon Maynard, who um, who made a really good he gave me a really good tip after reading this Zhang decision. And uh, um, I found it very useful. Uh, so I thought I would pass it along, which is I've had in the last probably six months, two cases where um, I made my submissions and we'd closed out the hearing from my standpoint at the IAD and ministers council stood up and basically consented. And they say, I'm on side with Deanna. Yes, we are going to make a joint recommendation that this resolution be put forward. And then the member made a different decision. So. The reason I raise this is because... Was it the same member? No, different members. Oh, interesting. Both of them ended up at federal court. One of them, we were successful, and it ended up going back in favor, and everything's hunky-dory. The other one is this decision. So the thing that Gordon suggested, and I thought it was just super brilliant, is that when you've got a joint recommendation... If at that point the member was like, okay, thank you very much, counsel, I'm going to reserve... At that moment, you say, hold on one second. Are there further issues that you have? Because what both of my federal court cases kind of didn't actually determine, but kind of flirted around was that it's just not clear whether there's a procedural fairness issue if they don't ask for further submissions, but then render a decision that's different than the joint recommendation. There's a whole bunch of jurisprudence on it, and I've read it all. Um, but basically what I'm telling you is that it's not 100% clear. So if you don't, I mean, some, what usually, because I've had this happen many times where you get a joint recommendation and the member says, I'm going to go away and write the decision. And it's because they want to have very clear reasons in favor. And that's kind of what I thought was happening in both of these cases, because they were heard not far apart. And then I got two refusals and I was like, what just happened to me, right? 
Um, so just don't take for granted that when they say, yeah, I'm going to write it down, that that means they're going to write it down in your favor. And so I take that opportunity to say, if you have further concerns, can I please have an opportunity, if nothing else, just to paper that there's a procedural fairness issue if they say, no, 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 I'm done with you. No, that is a, uh, that's a very useful totally. tip. Um, I have, I've not had minister, I mean, the IRB isn't that big a part of my practice. I haven't had, uh, like, probably a consented to file at a hearing in about five years, but I know that I used to just, as soon as the minister's counsel would consent, uh, tell my client, I that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tie your bag. Exactly. You probably Same have with me. hang out in the uh, first floor of the library. Uh, the library building in Vancouver downtown is where the IRB has its hearings and probably have to hang out for 20 minutes while a decision gets written, but that should be it. And, um, it was interesting also in the Jang decision to see the suggestion, or I guess ruling, since it was from uh, a justice, that minister's counsel is breaching procedural fairness by not aggressively arguing the whole case, even if they consent to the matter. I think uh, I think that is a good summary of Chu. It's one of the you know three thousand plus citations, one of the must read decisions in immigration law, and especially now that, um, as Deanna said, there is this trend of certain decision makers uh, and justices leaning towards interpretations of the IRPA that suggests that one factor may be determinative in humanitarian and compassionate uh, considerations, that going back to Chu and in a later podcast, Kent the Sammy, that it really is a holistic test where no factor is supposed to be determinative. I think that's all I've got. Me too. Okay, awesome. Pleasure.